yesterday, while I was preparing for this, I uh, put into a Google search, greatest tragedies of all time. And, uh, you know, you get various lists and polls and things that, 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 you know, have been taken over the years. And some of the common, um, common most voted or, or, or thought or opinionated tragedies of all time were things like World War II, uh, the Holocaust, um, the Black Plague, um, you know, for 50% for of the, the population, Donald Trump, you know, for the other 50%, it's Obama, you know, <laughs> you know. Um, one of them even said the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which obviously we would we would disagree. <laughs> you know, we would say that's one of the greatest things that ever happened. Not obviously for the, the shame of it, but for what it purchased on our behalf. You know, but um, but certainly we all understand the the the, the weight and the significance uh, of tragedies, and certainly we <laughs> mourn their existence. Um, I have an uncle, my father's brother, uh, Uncle Tony. Um, and and he's he's still alive. He's well into his 80s. When he was um, in his late teens and early 20s, he he was on his way uh, to becoming a, a professional basketball player. He was uh, a talented point guard. Um, he was was being scouted by the Rochester Royals, which was a semi-professional basketball team. And back in in, in those days, they no longer exist. And um, when he was about 20 years old, he was diagnosed with polio, and he lost. Uh, the use of one of his legs, and he could no longer play play basketball uh, from it. And so it, it was a tragic circumstance that, that that came to bear upon his life, and it changed the course of his future. You know, he was going in one direction. Uh, his dreams had him aspiring towards a certain end, um, and then something happened to him that changed that altogether. And that was a certainly tragic thing for him, and 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 the way that it affected the family. Um, however, he got through that. He, he kind of rose above it. He, um, he ended up taking over the family business. He ended up, uh, um, you know, meeting my Aunt Elaine and, and leading a good family. Um, he, he's, he's a man of, of, of upstanding character and, uh, and of a great disposition. And even now into his 80s, he's a joy to be around. There, there's something about him that is just absolutely uh, uh, great, wonderful, though he limps uh, on that polio leg even to this day. And and never attained unto that dream. Now, that's a tragedy, um, but, but the tra that tragedy was an unavoidable tragedy. That, that, that was something that happened to him that had no, it was no consequence of anything that he did. Um, it just happened. And, and that, that certainly is a, a type of a tragedy. Um, however, in the text that's before us this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, we have another tragedy, and, and this tragedy is perhaps the greatest type of tragedy that there is, and, it, and, it's, and it's the greatest type of tragedy for two reasons. Uh, first of all, because um, of what it produces, this type, this tragedy that we see in the text here before us today. Uh, the second reason why it's the greatest tragedy is because it absolutely is completely avoidable. Uh, nobody has to go, or, or it doesn't have to happen to anybody the way that it happened uh, to King David, as we see in the text here um, this morning. And so, uh, unlike my Uncle Tony, who was able to rise above 
the, the tragedy uh, that, that took place in his life. Um, David is never going to arise over this tragedy in some ways. Uh, though he'll be forgiven, he'll be restored, uh, though, though the things that, that he did will be redeemed and work together uh, for God's good and the good of his kingdom, uh, though it becomes an instruction for us, and, and though David's fall has, has turned out to be the safeguard against the fall of many, 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 many men and, and women since David, uh, nevertheless, the effects of, of this tragedy in David's life uh, stay with him for the rest of his life. He will never get over the effect of these things, the shame of it, the regret. Uh, he will overcome the guilt of it because he does that by the grace of God. Um, but, but he'll carry all of those other consequences of it all the way to his grave. So if you're there in 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's just read. We're just going to look at the first five verses. That's all uh, we'll cover and then, um, and then we'll, we'll develop it and hear what God has to say to us today. It tells us in verse 1, it says that it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Or in the New King James, I believe it says that David stayed at home. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he laid with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said that I am with child. And by the time we come to this point in David's life, David is at, at the very pinnacle or the peak of his career and of his destiny. We see that he started out as an energetic uh, and charismatic youth. Uh, we see that he was a man, a young man, and, and then an older man that loved God. Uh, he had tremendous zeal for God and courage. Um, he was one that, that by faith would, would go against the lion and then the bear and then the giant, Goliath. Uh, we see that as a young man, he was visited by the prophet Samuel, that God recognized something in the heart of this youth. And uh, God sent Samuel to anoint him with oil and, and to tell him that there was hope for his future and a promise and a plan. We see that David was soon exalted. Uh, he was brought into the palace where he was given an entry-level job, uh, where he had clearance to the highest levels. He became uh, one of Saul's armor bearers and generals, and he would go out and fight the battles of the Lord. He was given great favor and great success on the battlefield. Uh, the, the song was ascribed to him by the, uh, by the women and, and the citizens of Israel that David has slain his tens of thousands. And he quickly became a household name, and his good reputation spread throughout Israel. Uh, we see that in the process of uh, time and God's plan for him, David was driven from the palace and he spent a number of years uh, in the desert and in the wilderness where his character was being forged and where he was being tempered and trained uh, to become a great leader and a great king at the hand of God. We saw that ultimately God brought him through that time 
of preparation and training and brought him into the palace. David ultimately became the king over a united kingdom uh, of both Judah in the south and, and the ten tribes in the north and the people rallied around King David. Uh, he was exalted. He was blessed by God. His throne was established. He was held in high honor even by the nations that were surrounding Israel. The king of uh, Lebanon um, provided the materials and the labor to build David a palace. Uh, and, and, and then um, we see that, uh, that, that, that he, he did incredible things. He brought the ark into, uh, uh, into Jerusalem and made that the capital. There was um, a promise that was given to David by God that the Messiah would come through him. Uh, and then all of the kingdoms that were surrounding Israel were subdued and, and put down to rest uh, under the, 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 the rest kingdom of David. And so David uh, is really at this point kind of sitting on top of it all. He has seen God take him from the lowest place that a, that a human life can be, and he's brought him now to the highest place, and he's given him the character and the heart and everything that goes along with it, with the honor and the blessing. Now, when we consider David... Uh, we see a man who, who has more pages of scripture dedicated to his story and what God did in his life than almost anyone else in the Bible. Um, he's probably second only to Jesus, and that might be a close second if you were to go through and, and, and compare it side by side. David is held up in great honor by God uh, in all of this. And so David has a, a ton of chapters of the Bible that, that kind of describe this life and what God has done in elevating this life. And, and the amazing tragedy uh, of King David's story and testimony in Scripture is that for all that he's been through up to this point, and for all that, that is recorded concerning him in the Bible, it only takes five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11 for, for an arrow to pierce through the heart of it all and to take the whole thing down. It, it, at this point, it, it turns the corner and, and it goes from a Disney story to a Shakespeare tragedy that fast. That it just that fast. One incident, one evening, after all of these years of everything that God has done for him, that fast the story turns and it will never go back to what it was uh, before this time and before this event in David's life. The consequences uh, of what took place in this one evening uh, when David in a moment of weakness is tempted and, 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 and David sins in this way, the consequences of this thing is that David's spirit, uh, which soared before this, will be forever deflated. His, his zeal uh, that he once showed will be removed and David is slowly now going to begin to become a shell or a fraction of the man that he used to be. Uh, the joy of the story. Uh, from this point on, we're going to be reading as we look at what happens in David's life. And, and part of us is going to want to turn our Bible this way and shake it and say, Where's David? Where's my David? <laughs> you know, the, the, that, that, I, that I so love and, and that has been such an inspiration to me. And so now the joy of the story and of David's destiny is going to be eclipsed by the shame of the deed that he did. 
And the golden years are what should have been the golden years of David's life where he can now look back with, with joy upon everything that God has done for him uh, and should have been a sunset of glory for David's uh, ending, now becomes an ash cloud of confusion as he'll deal with the fallout of this one event for the rest of his life and for the rest of his reign. We're going to see that David's family, uh, which uh, family is the only sanctuary a leader at this level has. You have, you have no inner circle when, you, when you're a king uh, like in a place like David. And the only inner circle that you have is your family. And we're going to see that his family life is going to um, become fragmented, uh, hostile, and vicious, not to mention the fruit that will be produced from this um, in his son Solomon, who will take over after him. We're going to see that David's moral authority uh, as the king over Israel is going to be completely erased. He's going to lose control of his kingdom absolutely. Uh, the chief leader of his um, administration is a man by the name of Joab, and Joab is going to be aware of what David does here and of the cover-up that David sought to attempt, and, and Joab, because of this, is going to realize that he has now a, a free pass to do... He's listening to another study. <laughs> be sure your sin... We'll find you out. <laughs> Joab has going to realize that he has a free pass at this point to do whatever he wants and, and that David can do nothing about it because Joab has dirt on David now and Joab is going to uh, take full advantage of that uh, in David's life and in his position um, in David's cabinet. Um, and then finally, and probably for David, what would be the greatest consequence of all and what would hurt David the most um, when thinking about this event in his life is that David has now tarnished the reputation, and, and, and hurt the heart of his God. And, and, and though David did this, it didn't diminish the fact that he was a lover of God at all. And the part of this that, that hurt David the most is what it did to the reputation of God and, and the way that it grieved uh, his God in it. And so, so David is never going to be the same man again on the other side of this. Now, the amazing thing about all of these consequences that took place in David's life is that these are universal consequences uh, for this particular sin in the life of any man. Uh, the way they translate or, or the, the way they appear in a life is different depending on who we are, where we live. But all of those same consequences uh, touch anyone who falls after this way. The deflation of spirit, uh, the diminishing of joy and the destiny, uh, the golden years becoming an ash cloud of confusion, the family fragmentation, the, 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 the state of the moral authority, uh, the shame that we feel towards what we did to the heart of God and all of that. All of those things are universal consequences uh, to the action associated with what we see in the story. Now, David doesn't lose his salvation over this. He didn't stop being a son of God or a lover of God or being loved by God. He's forgiven, restored, all of it's redeemed, all the rest. But nevertheless, the consequences stay with David uh, in it. Now, the reason why God uh, put this in the Bible for us is not to shame David. Um, he did it because it serves for you and I as a warning and an admonition, um, lest we fall after the same way. 
And, and so what God puts before us in these five verses is that he gives to us uh, essentially um, the, the, the answer to the question of how did David get here? How did, how did this happen in David's life? And how can you and I avoid having the same end that David has in, in this whole thing? What led David down this path? that ultimately ended with Bathsheba uh, in the way that it did, and how can it be avoided? So if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you six things that are here before us in the Bible um, that that David did that led him to this point. Um, What makes this an an avoidable tragedy? We can avoid this. None of us have to end up like David did here. Uh, So how do we do it? What did David do that, that led him to this end? Number one is that David let lust live in the days when it was destined to die. David let lust live in the day that it was destined to die. We have read concerning King David uh, up to this point um, that David had a problem with women. When he first um, established some authority, when he was still yet in the wilderness, he took two wives then. He took uh, uh, um, this woman that was a Jezreelitess and, and Abinoam, and then he took another woman uh, that was the wife of Nabal, Abigail, and he took those two wives initially. And then when he became the king over Judah, um, he took a few more wives. There was a couple more that he took to himself, being a king and having uh, the right to do that. Though he didn't have the biblical right to do it, he had the the political right to do it and the cultural acceptance of it. Uh, He went with it and he took a few more wives then. Then when he took Jerusalem as the capital, he added a few more and he had a couple of more wives uh, even then. And so God thus far has kind of let us see into David's weakness in this thing. And what we realize is that David had a weakness for women. And rather than dealing with that weakness before the Lord and bringing unto him for sanctification and in surrender, he justified it because it was acceptable or permissible in the culture and he fed it. Uh, thinking that 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 it wouldn't um, affect him in the long run because of his position. In the New Testament book of Second Peter, um, in chapter one, the, the Bible says that when you and I are born again, or when a person comes into a relationship with the living God, um, the Bible says that that two things are given to us. There, there in First Peter chapter one, it says that first of all that we are given by God power to be partakers of his divine nature. Meaning that God gives to us, supernaturally, the ability to become Christ-like, or the ability to become like him. That's the first thing that God gives us when we're born again. The second thing that he gives us is he gives us power to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so he gives us both the power to become what otherwise we could never become, God-like, And also, he gives us power to escape the corruptions that in the world we were slaves to that we could not escape from prior to our salvation when we come to Christ. Now, when we come to him, and every one of us uh, experiences this when we come to Christ, there are certain things that God automatically removes from our lives. I mean, it's like a light switch. There's no struggle. There's no fight. There's no uh, issue with it. There's things that he just removes. They're gone. 
And, and sometimes we don't even realize it until we've been walking with him for a couple of months and all of a sudden it's, it strikes us like, you know, I'm free from, from certain things. You know, for me, before I, I came to Christ, you know, I was a partier and I was big into the party scene. And all the things associated with the party scene, God just took out of my life. They were gone and, and I didn't even realize it. The temptation, the hunger, the desire for those things, it was just gone. There was no fight at all. A foul mouth for me. You know, I remember growing up, you know, there were, I, I, I found out later on that there were kids in my street that weren't allowed to hang out with me because their parents said, Nick Santos a swear mouth. That was, that was the reputation. You know, the foul mouth. But it was something that was just gone. From the moment I've got, I, I gave my life to Christ, it just wasn't natural. Those things didn't come out of my mouth. It's never been a struggle for me ever again, you know, since. But there were other things. And there are other things in every Christian's experience that that's not the case. We get saved and that struggle persists. And there's a battle and a fight that has to ensue. And the victory that comes over those things isn't automatic. It isn't a light switch. But there's something now where I have to fight. And it can cause us to question Sometimes and say, well, God, you know, some things were so easy and they were just gone and other things weren't so easy. What's the deal? And we have a choice then. We can either say, well, God certainly has the power to take this out of my life, but he didn't. So therefore, either he accepts it and he approves of it or there's some other thing, other reason. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, when the children of Israel came into the land and had to drive out their enemies, God said this word. It's very profound. He said, I'm not going to drive out all of the Canaanites all at once. It's not going to happen all at once. And he said, here's why. So that you might learn to fight and so that the generations after you will have some battles to fight and they'll learn how to fight. I'm going to drive them out a little at a time. And so though there's some things that God drives out right away when we come to Christ, there are other enemies that God lets us fight with so that we'll learn to fight. Because it's important that every one of us learns how to fight against the enemies that we have in this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We've got to fight against those things. And so there's some things that are a battle and that God gives us to battle and he tells us to battle in those things. But if we compromise or justify them or nurse them along, then ultimately, if we don't fight against those things, those things will overpower us at the last and we'll find ourselves falling prey to them. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 6 is a profound truth. It says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned. I'm just going to think about what that says for a minute. Can a man take fire in his bosom? Where's the bosom? It's inside, in the deepest place where no one can see, right? And so if I take fire into my bosom, you know, a lust, a desire, a sin, and I hide it underneath and I nurse it along and say, well, nobody knows it's there. It's not going to affect anything. This is just the way I am. I've always been this way. God didn't take this out of my life. I'm just going I'm, I'm to conceal it there and no one's going to... Listen, eventually your clothes are going to be burned. You know where your clothes are? They're on the outermost part 
where everyone can see. And if I leave something inside that God calls me to crucify, a day will come when what's on the inside will work its way to the outside. And what I was able to control and conceal at the beginning will overpower me and put me to an open shame at the last. David was called to deal with the inward lust as a younger man, and he didn't do it. He justified it. He bought into the lie that because this is culturally acceptable, it's agreeable with God, and I'll be able to control this thing all the way to the grave, and it ended up being David's downfall. Um, I believe that there is final deliverance from any sin that any one of us struggles with. There are times that a battle can take so long that we think, okay, well, I might be able to, to create some distance between me and my sin, but I'm never going to be free of it. I'm going to struggle with it until the day I die. I don't believe that. I believe that there, there can be a long battle. I, I believe you can fight with something for 10 years, but I believe that when we fight, and, and we put things to death in the way that God has called us to, and we deal with things the way that God has called us to, I believe that there is a final deliverance. I've experienced that in my own life, so I know it to be absolutely true. We'll talk more about that uh, as we go. Um, how do we do it before we move on? How do we crucify those things in our lives that have such a hold on us, uh, uh, things like this um, that, that seem almost impossible for us to overcome? What's the method of of dying to these things and all. The first thing that we must do is we must acknowledge it as sin and repent of it. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the cleansing of it is the breaking of its power. And so repentance is paramount in the freedom processes that we must own our sin and bring it to him in humility and in repentance. The second thing that we must do is that we must, as Romans chapter 6 says, reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto the sin. Is that in Christ and in the cross, we must reckon in our mind. Reckon means account, means, meaning that maybe it didn't happen yet. Meaning almost that I'm doing it on credit, but I'm reckoning that because of the cross, in God's mind, he has set me free from this sin. And that it's only a matter of time as I fight until my freedom that he's given me is my experience as well as my position. And so I must reckon that I'm dead to this sin. Third of all, I've got to pray for deliverance. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that if I, by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, I will live. So victory comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, let me ask you this. Where, what store do I go to where I can buy a bottle of this Holy Spirit <laughs> so that I can use it to mortify the deeds of the flesh? And the answer is, I can't find that store. So where do I obtain power in the Spirit to obtain victory over the sins of my flesh? The answer is in prayer. God gives the Spirit. The Spirit comes from God. And so if I'm going to obtain spirit power over the sins in my life, then I've got to learn to ask him for that power. And so I ask him for it. And then finally, I'm called to fight and to flee. The Bible says, flee youthful lusts. 
flee youthful lusts. Paul said, flee fornication, sexual sin. For every sin that a man does is outside of his body. It's different. But he that fornicates or sexually sins, sins against his own body. And it's a, it's a different class. It's a different type of sin. And, and the way you get away from it is you run. You run from it. And, and so the way that we kill what, what God says to kill is we repent, we reckon, we pray, and we fight. And God will give deliverance to us uh, when we do. So David let lust live in the days that it was destined to die. Number two uh, that led David down this, this path or, or brought him ultimately to this end is that David stopped setting godly goals for himself. You'll notice that it says in verse uh, 1 of our text there in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says that, 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 that it was the time of year the kings go forth to battle, but that David sent Joab and that David himself stayed at home. David is about 20 years into a 40-year reign at the time that this sin uh, takes place in his life. He's about 58 years old. Which, which shocks some people to realize that it was at that stage in David's life that this happened. He wasn't a young man. He wasn't 30 and at the peak of his you know, drive and all. He was 58 years old when this happened in his life. Um, a lot had already been accomplished. The ark is in Jerusalem. The palace has been made. The plans for the temple have already been laid out. Uh, the promise of his future successive generations has been given to him by God. And, and David at this point begins to coast. David doesn't stay at home. David's the warrior. David's the one who, he doesn't even let the, 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 you know, the privates in the front line. David leads into the battle. This is David. But now we see David at a point in his life where he's going, you know what? I could sit back a little bit. I've accomplished. Listen, David's only halfway done. God's got 20 more years of things for David. David has no business at this point in his life relaxing or sitting in the back seat and letting things kind of go by him. What's happened to David here that ultimately leads him to a compromised position is that David has lost impetus and vision for his life. In his mind, the only thing left for him to do is to coast through his golden years and to go to heaven, but that's not what God had in mind for David. So he sent Joab. Notice also in that verse that it says that David arose from his bed in an evening tide. What in the world is David doing sleeping <laughs> during the day and he's not getting out of bed until the evening? It's a dangerous place that David finds himself in at this time. The Bible says this, guys. The Bible says that there is no discharge in this war. There is no discharge in this war. War. I know of a pastor who in his church sanctuary, a large sanctuary, he has a rope. And that rope extends uh, from one corner of the room and it goes around the perimeter near the ceiling of all four walls of that room. And then it, and then it comes back uh, to, to the very beginning. And, and when you look at that rope, at the very beginning of that rope, in the one corner of the room, the first eight inches of that rope are wrapped with red tape. And then the rest of the rope is bare, and it goes all the way around the room. And, and, and when asked what that uh, rope is there for and what it signifies, he says, well, that rope right there represents the lifespan of every Christian. And, and you'll notice that it's very long and that it's continual. It goes all the way around the room because we are eternal beings. 
And, and so what does the red tape then represent? He says, well, the red tape represents uh, the 70 or 80 years of that lifespan that you'll spend on earth. The rest of it is what you'll spend in eternity. And the purpose of that being there is a visual expression to remind us that our lifespan is eternal. You and I are still going to be alive in 80 years. Do you understand? I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah, yeah, you will be alive in 8 billion years. A billion years from now, you and I are still going to be alive. And we're going to be in paradise, and we're going to be free of battles, and we're all going to be filthy rich, every one of us, without any worry or concern about about where anything is going to come from, and we will be ruling and reigning with Christ in his throne, we'll be a part of whatever God has intended for, for that age and that time, and it will be glory for all of it. But listen, guys. The 60 or 70 or 80 years that you and I have to be in this world, we are in a battle. And we're called to run, we're called to fight, and we're called to grow throughout the entire span of that 70 or 80 years that God gives to us in this life. And if we begin to forget for one moment what this life is, and that it is a battle, and that it is hostile... And we start to think that we can coast through, you know, okay, well, I've only got one life to live and it's almost over and I better relax a little bit. Listen, you're in a dangerous place. There's no discharge in this war. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, be diligent. Two times it says it in that chapter. It says, grow. It says, let these things be in you and abound that we're always adding to our faith, virtue and knowledge and temperance and brotherly kindness and love. We must grow. And the moment we lose vision for our lives is the moment we set ourselves into a vulnerable place of danger that we might subvert and sabotage our own future. Can I ask you guys, if you check the pulse of your own spiritual life, what goals are you setting for your spiritual development right now? Have you begun to coast? Are you coasting in your Christian life? If you are, you might be in a place of vulnerability and of danger. We must continually have godly goals before us. God, what do you have for me in this season of my life? Though I be 58, 68, 78 years old, if I'm still on this planet, God, you've got something for me. What is it? May I never spend one day simply coasting. Number three uh, that led to David's fall is that David forgot about the devil. The Bible tells us that we have an adversary, that there is an enemy of our faith who is constantly, the Bible says, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And so Satan has every single one of us in his crosshairs and he has a desire to take every single one of us out and he's smarter than every single one of us. So how does Satan like he did with David, because Satan set this up. I mean, when you look at what happened in the text, I mean, this was just like Satan set this trap. He had the woman in the right place. He had the palace with the view. He had Uriah and, uh, and, and, and Bathsheba by that house there that was in proximity. They were so excited that day that they were approved and they got their mortgage. And, and, and Satan was smiling. He knew exactly. He, was, he had been watching David for years. And, and, he, and he saw this whole thing. 
and he just watched this, guys. I've got him. This is it. You know, he pulled this, this whole trap off and set it up. That's what he does. How does Satan set the trap in the life of a man? He does two things. And he does this. Satan is doing this to you right now. And don't be deceived and think, well, he doesn't care about me. Oh, yes, he does. He does two things, and he does it extremely well. What he does is that he deceptively broadens the lines of the narrow path. What did Jesus say? He said, narrow is the way that leads to life, right? And he bid us to walk the narrow path. So here's what Satan does. Jesus has established these these walls, these boundaries, these commands. He says, walk within this and you'll be safe. And what happens is that someone, some Christian somewhere, what they do is they just kind of step a little bit outside the boundaries of one of those lines. Just a little bit. It's just, it's not adultery. It's just lust. And I'm called not to lust. You know, don't covet. That's a command that's in the boundary. But I can, and what happens, we walk outside and we go, I'm just going to lust. I'm not cheating. I'm just lusting, lusting. And here's what Satan does because he's so smart. Like a lion, he comes right up, and he goes, as you're lusting, you're outside the boundaries, and he goes, and he misses. And you go, you can't reach me here, can you? And he goes, oh, no, I can't reach you here. Now, he could. Because he's been given dominion all the way up to the borders of that narrow path. But he doesn't come to the borders of the narrow path. He steps way back away from it and pretends he can come no further than a certain point. And so we walk over here and we go, I'm just going to lust. It's just a couple of sips. It's an occasional toke. Satan can't get me in that. It's harmless. It's legal. The culture accepts it. Look at all the Christians that are doing this and nobody's affected by it. I'm safe here. And Satan goes, yeah, you're safe. I can't get you. And then he backs up a little bit more. And then we move over a little bit more. And then he backs up a little bit more. And we move over a little bit more. And then when enough people, or when the stakes are high enough, he then says, got him. And he pounces on that person that has left the safety of the narrow way. He deceptively broadens the boundaries of the narrow path that God has set up for us to walk in safety. Second thing he does, and he is doing this to you right now, is that he watches and he takes notes. So he sees that long look that we take in a direction that we shouldn't be taking, and he just makes a mental note of it. And he goes, okay, that's what they're taken by. That's what they're attracted to. He just takes notes, and then he makes a plan. That's what he does. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the gates of the city were the government of the city. It's the planning room. It's the round table. It's the conference center. It's the blackboard where plans and Things are drawn up. And that's what the devil does. He broadens the boundaries. He takes notes. He makes a plan. And when he can, he executes. And that's exactly what Satan did to David here. David forgot that there's a devil. And the devil shows no mercy at all. 
When he can pounce, he will pounce, and he leaves no mercy at all. David forgot. The Bible says that we're to be vigilant and we're to be sober because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We must not forget that there is a devil. Number four that led David to this great fall is that David set himself in the place where he knew that he would be tempted. Now, don't be deceived for one minute into thinking that David didn't know what he would see when he went up on the rooftop. And also, don't be deceived for one minute into thinking that Bathsheba didn't know what David would see. <laughs> when she Listen, you say, okay, well, that was a different culture, that was a different time, you know, whatever, they did things on the roof. No, no, no. This is Israel, God's people, during revival days, <laughs> okay, when holiness was a standard, you don't go nakedly up on your roof, you know, in this whole thing. Um, th there was some flirtation here. There was some tension that was already there. Yeah, David, I'll just go for a walk up on my roof and the whole thing. David put himself in a place where he would, would, would be subjected to his own weakness. Sometimes men, and, and this, is, this is true of all of humanity, we can purposefully set ourselves in a place where we know that we're going to be tempted. Because there's a certain, there's a certain appeal. There's a certain pleasure. There's cer certain things that happen. I gave you guys an article today. I hope you'll uh, take this home and that you'll read it. And I hope it's insightful for you. I give this uh, article away. This is one of the ones I keep in my file and just continually give out you know, to, to people that need it. But basically what it talks about is uh, just the, the various neurological brain chemicals that our own bodies produce uh, that, that trigger pleasure and, 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 and reward sensory type of things in our bodies and in our minds. And, and the first thing that you're going to read there on that list that, that our brain produces when it gets stimulated towards some pleasure is that our brain releases into our bloodstream this, this substance called dopamine. And here's what dopamine does when dopamine is released into the bloodstream. Dopamine is the chemical that mediates pleasure in the brain. It is released during pleasurable situations and it stimulates one to seek out the pleasurable activity or occupation. This means food, sex, and several drugs of abuse are also stimulants of dopamine release in the brain. And so we, we kind of entice ourselves... You know, and we get the reward of the release of that dopamine, which is a pleasurable thing in us, and we think that we can go that far and then stop. But here's the problem with that, and this is just science mixed with spiritual here, is that what dopamine does, scientific, is that it blocks our ability to reason through the negatives of an action. The desire for the outcome overrules our ability to reason through the consequences and we get pulled into something that otherwise, if we were thinking clearly, we wouldn't do. If you ask any man that ever falls after the manner of King David to make two lists, two lists, first list is make, make a list of all of the reasons why you should get into an adulterous relationship. Just write out all the good reasons why you should do that. That's going to be a very short list, <laughs> right? The good reasons why I should. Well, I like it. I want to. 
you know, uh, it doesn't go much further than that. You know, like the good things that are going to, you know, the reasons why I should. Now, make a second list. Here's the second list. All the reasons why I shouldn't. <laughs> That's a long list. You consider the consequences of it, what it's going to do, the people that are at stake, the things that it's going to affect. I mean, that list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And any rationally thinking person that, that can weigh out consequences of actions can look at those two lists and they would be able to say, this is not a good idea. And nobody would ever fall into that sin. Or that. Now, it doesn't have to just be adultery. It can be any, any sin that you know that you struggle with. So why then do people sin and do the thing that it makes no sense to do? Because sin is stronger than our ability to reason. And that's just a fact of humanity. Sin blocks our ability to make good decisions. Therefore, men, here's the application of all that science that confused everybody. For us to put ourselves in a situation where we're going to be tempted by the thing that tempts us is utter folly. Oh, I'm just going to see if I can withstand. I want to see how strong I am in the whole thing. I said earlier in our study today that I believe that there is a such thing as final deliverance from sin, from our sin. You know, you might struggle with alcohol abuse or substance abuse or sex abuse or porn or something, you know, whatever. We all have our, our thing. And I believe that there is final deliverance, meaning that God will bring you to a place where you are not even affected by the temptation anymore. I believe that. But here's what I also believe, is that if we are stupid enough, having obtained final deliverance, to test out the strength of our resolve, that we will end up in a worse condition than what we started in. There was a man by the pool of Bethesda who was in a crippled, impotent state for 38 years of his life. And he had an encounter with the Son of God. And Jesus said, would you be made whole? And the man at first said, I can. I've been trying for 38 years to be made whole, and I have come away with nothing. And Jesus said to him that day, take up your bed and walk. And it says, immediately he was made whole, and he took up his bed, and he walked, and he went home. That's final deliverance, and Jesus gives final deliverance. But listen, the story doesn't end there. Because the next day, it says that Jesus came to him and found him in the temple. Good place to be. And Jesus warned him, and he said this, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Don't flirt with something that you know in your mind is a weakness in your flesh. Because though perhaps there's been final deliverance, you can end up in a worse state nevertheless. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to be tempted with the thing that is a weakness to you. Number five, and we are drawing close to a close. I know it gets wearying to hear so much information. but Number five is that David ignored the open door of escape. The Bible tells us that when we are tempted, that God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able to handle, but he will, with that temptation, also give to us a door of escape that we might be able to bear it. 
So God gives a way of escape in every situation that we don't end up falling. You say, well, what was the what was the the, the door of escape that David had uh, in this temptation that he could have taken that he didn't take? There were two of them. N- number one is that Bathsheba was a little bit further away than a text message. You know, this was some the kind of a thing where he had to do he had to go through like a four or five step process in order to make this encounter happen. First of all, he had to inquire, who is that woman? Second of all, then he had to send messengers to her house you know, to see what she was doing that night. Then he had to wait while all of that was arranged and she would actually come to him and then he would have the moments of realization. So he had, he had some time in this whole thing to go, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? But he didn't do that. He blew through the roadblock. The second door of escape that was given to David in this thing was in the return message that the messengers brought to him when he inquired who it was. They said, this woman is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That should have been enough. She's married. She's taken. This is a closed door. That even if I wanted to exercise executive privilege and add to my wife harem, This woman is already taken, and it would be wrong. It's adultery. No king is above adultery, though I might be be able to get away with polygamy. I can't get away with adultery. That's a door of escape. That's a word from the Lord. Don't do this. Don't go down this road. But he blew through the roadblocks that were there before him. It's an amazing thing to me when I sit with somebody uh, who, who is, is experiencing the fallout of some great um, fall or some great sin in, in their life, is that every time, without fail, without exception, they will say to me, without me even asking, they will say, I blew through every roadblock that God put up before me. And they can tell me what they are, they can tell me when they came, in what fashion, that they knew that it was God warning them, but that they just blew through every single one of those things. God always gives us a way of escape in the whole thing, and we choose whether or not we're going to heed it, and David did not. And then finally, number six, that led to David's fall, is that David found a way to justify what he knew was condemned. He found a way to justify what he knew in his heart was condemned. Interesting, when the message came back that this man was, that this woman was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, David didn't hear the wife part, but he did hear the Hittite part. He's a Hittite? Well, technically, he doesn't maybe have a right to marry an Israelite woman. He's a Gentile, mixed marriage, it's kind of invalid, you know, and he doesn't really matter to God. I mean, he told us to kill all the Canaanites, didn't he? And, you know, so, yeah, you know, maybe we could get away with this whole thing. Tells us also in the text, the part of the rationale of David is that Bathsheba was now purified from her monthly uncleanness. Why was she bathing on the roof? Because, well, for seven days after the cycle, she can't be touched, but now she's, God, this is you? Maybe you're, maybe, you're, maybe you're letting this happen. I mean, the timing is just perfect. I mean, it's providence. She's cleansed. You know, this is... You, no, 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 David. This is adultery. You're justifying, you know, based upon uh, the fact that she's being purified, but you're negating the fact that this is adultery. Isn't it amazing our ability to justify things? 
when we want something. We can completely blow through the negatives of the thing. As we conclude, guys, here's what I want us to realize and take away this morning in this whole thing. In Second Peter chapter 1, I know this is the third time I'm referencing that chapter, you know. But Peter writes and he says this. He says, be diligent to add to your faith, and then he gives that list, virtue, knowledge, brotherly kindness, godliness, agape love, and he says, grow. Let these things be in you and abound, and here's the promise if we do that. He says, if these things are in you and abound, they make you that you will neither be barren or unfruitful in your walk with the Lord, and he that does these things will never fall. That's the promise. That's what Peter says. If you're continually pursuing the things of God and growing in the things of God, you will never fall. That's a promise. And that's a promise. That's a fact. If you guys, listen, set yourselves in a way wherein these six things become the way that you deal with sin, You let lust live in the day that it's destined to die. If you stop setting godly goals for yourself and begin to coast through the rest of your time that you have on earth, if you forget about the devil and the fact that he's watching your life and would seek to take you out, if you set yourself in the place where you know you're going to be tempted and where you're weak, If you ignore the open doors of escape that God sets before you when you're tempted to sin, and if you find a way to justify what you know already is condemned, I guarantee you that you will fall. You will fall. No matter what God has done in your life previously, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how much of the Bible you know, no matter what you've already had victory over of and what experience you have in your life, no matter how strong you are or the resolve that you've had against sin, no matter what, if you do these things that David did, you will fall. You cannot overcome sin if you set yourself in this way. It doesn't have to be. It's an avoidable tragedy. It's so destructive The final consequence, in fact, concerning all of this is that once sin is initiated in the way that it has been here with David in these five verses that we read this morning, it will usually run its course before it dies off. And the course of any sin always goes much further than we could have ever thought, intended, or desired. By the time this whole episode is over in David's life, and it'll take about a year and a half before David wakes up, Not only will he have committed adultery with another man's wife, but on top of adultery, there will be deception, corruption, lying, conspiracy, theft, murder, hypocrisy, apathy, anger. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. When we buy sin, we always get more than what we bargained for. It's just the way that it goes. King David becomes a monster for a year and a half of his life, and all of it for a one-night stand. Not worth it. It's not worth it. It takes a year and a half for him to wake up. Father, we just thank you today, Lord, as we uh, conclude our study of, of this
tragic moment in David's existence. But as we sit here sober and fearful in a way, in a good way, Lord, we give thanks that you recorded this testimony for us in the Scripture. And our desire and prayer today, Lord, is that you would make this a great warning. That you would remind us again, Lord, that you set up the narrow way on purpose. You called it the highway of holiness. You told us, Lord, to make straight paths for our feet. You told us that you came to give us life and that more abundantly. And you said that your way is the good way and that we'd find rest for our souls. And so, God, our ask this morning is that we wouldn't find ourselves with the destiny of David, that our lives wouldn't be subverted, nor shipwrecked or cast aside, nor that we'd be torn apart by the roaring lion, but that, Father, you, by your grace, would rescue us from the peril of this sin that touches and affects us so powerfully and has a grip so great. So this morning, Lord, let your Holy Spirit fill us. Let your resolve and your wisdom guide us. Let your light give us insight and wisdom for our own path. Oh, Lord, that we wouldn't be tempted by the things that could ruin us. So we ask you, Lord, please have your way. Do your will. Strengthen us, Lord. And teach us to fight. And give us victory. We love you, Lord. We trust you. Lord, where we've fallen and stumbled, we pray that you would bring us back. Lord, where we've failed, we pray that there'd be mercy and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you can work all things together for the good. And so we look to you now. We also pray, Lord, for the rest of the men in this church body. Pray for the young men, the older men. Pray for the leaders here in this church. Pray for the men of Dutchess County. Oh, Lord, that you would expose this lie for what it is and that we'd be men of holiness, men of integrity, champions for your cause and kingdom. And we thank you, Father, that you teach us the right way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.